I see the future that's within our grasp. From the Political Science Department at UW-Madison. Democracy is not a prophecy, it's self-actuating. I'm Claire Salmi. I'm Cole Wozniak. And I'm Fiona Hatch. This is more work than in my previous life. I thought it would be easier. This is 1050 Bascom. Today on 1050 Bascom, we are pleased to welcome in Professor David Cannon, a veteran of the UW Political Science Department who is retiring after over 32 years of service of this university. We discussed his impending retirement and his plans for his future, as well as his reflections on his time at the University of Wisconsin and American politics. We hope you enjoy. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Um, It's a pleasure to get to talk with you and kind of sad that this is probably going to be the last 1050 episode that you're on. You're a pro at this point. Well, yeah, I've enjoyed doing these. It's, it's been a, a great thing for the department, I think, to have this podcast. Yeah, thank you. So we're going to just jump right into the big number one question we have for you. Why are you leaving us? Why are you retiring now? Because students <laughs> but, love your classes yeah. on American politics and Congress. And what's what are you going to do next? So I think this might be the easiest question that you'll be asking me today, because it really is 100% has to do with spending more time with family and especially our new granddaughter. So uh, we have a 16 month old uh, granddaughter now and it was like the day after she was born, I was like, huh, I really, we need to spend more time with this amazing little creature. And uh, so within about six weeks of her being born, we went up to Minneapolis where my, my daughter and, and, and uh, her husband and granddaughter live, and we bought a condo so we could spend more time up there. So we'll be splitting time between Madison and Minneapolis and because they have a very small house and like we couldn't really stay with them when we come visit. And so my wife was just laughing about this because like once I decide something, it's like, okay, it's gonna happen. And so we yeah, got the condo and and we you know, spend some time up there now, weekends and so on. But um, yeah, so that, that's definitely the main, the main thing. Um, and then in terms of other things we're planning on doing, um, so in addition to spending more time with our kids and, and uh, our granddaughter, um, I also uh, am in the process now of buying a, a camping trailer. Like we've always been tent campers, like we've you know, our whole lives, and we decided we're too old to sleep on the ground anymore. So we're getting, you know, we haven't decided for sure which one yet, but then my goal is to go to all of the national parks. And we've been so far to maybe 20, I think. And so we've got quite a few to go. And then as my wife is on board with that, she's not necessarily on board with the second part, but I'm also hoping to convince her to go to all the major league baseball parks. Um, so I'm a big <laughs> baseball fan. And I've, again, I've been to probably 15 or 20 of the major league ballparks, but I've still got quite a few to go as well. And so I'm hoping to work that in with the national park trips. Oh, so, that's yeah. so cool. My parents have talked about doing that too. They want to buy a camper. So they also said we're too old to sleep on the ground. Yeah. So <laughs> that seems like a great plan. So. so what's been your favorite part about teaching at UW-Madison as your tenure is coming to an end here? Well, I've, I've just enjoyed like all of it. I mean, this has really been such a perfect place to have a career from the great department with wonderful colleagues. And especially you know, when I talk to other friends and colleagues around the country, um, often you know, departments have you know, political problems within departments and splits and you know, rivalries. And we had none of that. Like we've always been a really collegial place where people get along. And so it's just been a very supportive, you know, really great uh, department to be in. And then, you know, the students here, too. I just have really enjoyed 
all the classes that I, I've taught, from the big intro class I've done from the very beginning. When I first got here, we taught, taught it over an ag hall, the big lecture hall, um, and with 600 students. And so it like filled ag hall, including the whole big balcony. Um, and now the classes is usually more like around 300 or so now. So it's still you know, a big lecture class, but not quite as big. So everything from that huge intro class to the you know, smaller senior seminars. And I've really enjoyed you know, all, of the, um, all of the classes. And I, so I started my teaching career at Duke University. And the, there was a noticeable difference between the students here and at, at Duke just in that they were more like the people I grew up with, because I, I grew up in the Midwest. I went in Indiana, went to undergrad at Indiana, and, and Wisconsin felt more like home to me than at Duke, where, you know, they, it was a lot of, like, obviously really nice people and, you know, good students, but they were just from a, a different, uh, entirely different, like, social background. And so you had a lot of, like, celebrity kids and really rich, famous people in uh, in your in your classes and like my very first seminar I taught at Duke I uh, had Lori Humphrey who was Hubert Humphrey's granddaughter and Jay Pritzker who is now governor of, of Illinois like we're both in this senior seminar with like you know, 20 students and so this was just like a brand new experience for me and a little in a way kind of intimidating so I felt like more at home when I came here because it was what you know I grew up with and and I just I really enjoyed the UW students so. So you mentioned a little bit about your time at Duke and just early on in your career. Uh, looking back, why did you want to get into academia and political science? Yeah, so I've always really loved politics. And from a, a young age, even I, you know, when I was a teenager, I did some volunteer work on different presidential campaigns and just always had an interest in, in politics. But up until probably my junior year at IU, I thought I was going to go to law school because my older sister was in law school and we had some friends of the family that you know, seemed to have good careers and it just seemed like you know, the thing to do. But then I started talking to more people who were lawyers and found out more about like, exactly what they did and yeah, I'm not sure this sounds so good to me. And I started talking to some of my professors about, especially a, a few that I had worked with most closely um, at Indiana, and they all you know, really seemed to love what they were doing. And, and, I, and also, I just always have enjoyed learning. I thought, huh, this is kind of a great job to be able to be a student the rest of your life. Because that's what it is when you're a professor. You get to be a student like for your whole career because you're always learning new stuff. And so it just, it was end of my junior year when I, I changed my mind from law school to going to grad school in, in political science. And I'm really glad I did it because I just, I don't think I would have been happy as a lawyer. So. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. How do you think that teaching and interacting with students for such a big part of your career has impacted your life in general? I mean, in so many ways. It just, it just is probably the thing I enjoy most about this job is being in the classroom. Um, again, from the big classes down to the, the smaller senior seminars. And then also just running into students like all over the place. Because I, I figured that I think I've taught close to 20,000 students now in my, my whole career. And I run into them like all over, not just all over the country, but I, I've had experiences like in, in Europe. Like this, the best story I can tell is this was probably about 15 years ago. Um, this was pre-cell phone in terms of like having really good access on cell phones. So you had to go to these internet cafes to check email. So I was sitting down at this one internet cafe and I was trying to log on to wisp.edu to you know, check my email. And I was having trouble getting in and I look over to the 
computer next to me and someone is on Whiskmail. I turn the look, I said, how'd you get on? He looks at me and says, Professor Cannon? <laughs> this is in Dubrovnik in you know, Croatia. And it's like, and, uh, and I said, yeah. I said, well, I had you for 104, like, you know, two years ago. And it's like, and, and so that, that kind of thing happened just all the time where I'll, you know, be at a restaurant in Boston or I'll be, and just like students will come up to me and say, hey, uh, one time I was at a, a Badger football game and this huge man was sitting in front of me like he was easily like 6'6", 280 pounds. Well, former Badger player who had me for 104 like 15 years earlier. He turned out we <laughs> chatted for a while. So, yeah, so that, that's really a fun part about it, about teaching, I think, is just having those continued interactions. And I've kept in touch with quite a few students over the years and just get to see how their careers are, are progressing. And it's always just great to, to see everything that former Badgers are doing. Yeah. We're, we kind of want to give you a chance to toot your own horn a little bit. Uh, what do you think are some of your um, most important or your biggest contributions to your field of study, political science? So I would say pretty clearly for me, it would be my work on race and redistricting. And so this is an interest that's been for a good part of my career is trying to, to figure out the relationship between the drawing of district lines to help promote racial representation and what impact that has actually on representing black interests in, in Congress. And so a lot of my uh, work in the sort of middle part of my career had to, to do with that. And it allowed me then to get involved in expert witness work and on litigation on, on actual you know, court cases, mostly in federal court, but some in state court. And that was a, a really, I think, nice opportunity to be able to have you know, your work actually influence what's happening in the real world, real world politics. Because often, you know, when we're doing our research, like we're mostly talking to other academics and, you know, and journals and, and books that are, you know, read by, you know, a fairly small number of people. Maybe they get assigned in some classes, but it's, you know, it's not that common to be able to have your work, you know, have some impact on actual, in this case, you know, federal court cases having to do with redistricting. And, and then, Probably the, uh, the the most exciting thing I did along those lines was actually getting to testify um, it before the Senate Judiciary Committee on the reauthorization of the Voting Rights Act. And so that was up for reauthorization. And Russ Feingold, who was our, one of our senators at the time, uh, invited me to testify at that hearing. And so the whole process of preparing for that and then being in this you know, big hearing room, the same one that they have the Supreme Court nomination hearings in um, that, you know, with all the C-SPAN cameras and everything, that was, you know, pretty, pretty intense experience. Wow. How was that? What was it like being in there? It, it was, it was pretty, it was pretty amazing. I mean, you know, Ted Kennedy was there and, uh, you know, and Russ Feingold and they, they did ask some, you know, pretty good questions, follow-up questions. So that your actual presentation, there were, I think, four of us on the panel, um, that two had been called by Republican senators, two had been called by Democratic senators. And so we each had about 10, 15 minutes to present you know, our points. And then there was just a, about a half an hour of questions you know, from the senators then. And uh, so yeah, it was, it was really wow. very, uh, very intense, but wonderful experience, yeah. <laughs> yeah, would yeah. you ever do it? Would you consider doing it again or was once more than enough? For oh, you? <laughs> no, I, no, it's the kind of thing I, yeah, no, I definitely would do it again. And I, I have testified probably, I don't know, three or four times at hearings here in the state capitol, too, on, on various issues, mostly having to do with voting and redistricting. Um, it's not quite as intense here, but also just that feeling like you're really participating in, in helping inform policy. And so that, that's the, the part about the research side of things I think I've enjoyed the most. 
you talk about what has changed the most when it comes to teaching political science at UW-Madison during your time? I would say, so interestingly, the students are very similar, I think. They, it's, you know, we certainly have, if you look at the numbers, our, our students incoming class now are like the most qualified ever, the highest grade GPAs and the test scores and everything. So, you know, in, in general, you could say that our student body has become academically stronger. But in general, I think the students are, are very much the same as when I first came, just in terms of their their interests and their eagerness to get involved in so many things on campus and um, and being you know really good serious students in terms of you know doing their work you know for the most part you get some people who are just happy to slide along but um, you know but that, for the most part the, the students I, I've really enjoyed um, the entire time I've been here so I wouldn't say that's changed much the one thing that has changed dramatically is technology it's unbelievable how much the the change in just the basic things about like how you go about teaching have changed so fundamentally. When I first came to this department, we didn't even have a photocopier we used for making exams. We had what was called an old mimeograph machine. Big contraption that it had this, I don't know what the chemical was, but it really smelled. And you actually had, you had to type the, the thing that was then made into this like three-layer thing that went through and basically inked these pieces of paper then that were for your exams. And that, I think, was only the first year I was here. We were still doing exams on the memory graph machine. And then we finally got a photocopier. So they said, oh, wow, we get to actually make copies. Um, but then, and that was, you know, for quite a while. And then, you know, because computer, in terms of, like, you know, PowerPoint and the Internet, Canvas, all of that doesn't come till you know, quite a bit later. Um, I think, you know, the PowerPoint presentations replacing the chalkboard, that happened probably about the late 90s, I want to say, something like that. Um, and Ken Mayer and I in this department were the first two to use PowerPoint, you know, for uh, lecture, big lectures. And they had special classes they would, you know, give professors to learn how to do PowerPoint. Um, and then, you know, having the, you know, everything now that's available on Canvas from the reading. See, we used to have these course packs. Students have to go out and buy these, you know, big course packs at Kinko's Coffee Shop. And, you know, and everything was on paper instead of PDFs. And so that, that's that been a really good change on the plus side in terms of technology. It's just so much easier to get access to things you need for classes. And and I think having, you know, the ability to, to show things in class, like, you know, take redistricting for an example. Like you can actually show then very easily like all of these pictures of these crazy maps of congressional districts. And that's something that was much harder to do. And in fact, almost impossible to do, like when I first started teaching. Now, so that's all on the plus side. On the downside on technology, though, I think definitely have to, to mention something that every professor I know has been concerned about this, is you know, the, the devices in the classroom, where people are on their phones, on their laptops, and um, you know, not always using them for purposes of like staying engaged in the, the classwork. Um, now, on the other hand, that too can be a plus where like sometimes something will come up in class and a student can look it up real fast and Google it and, and come up with something that you know, adds to this discussion. Like just on Monday in my race and politics class, um, we were talking about we, the topic for the week was housing discrimination and how um, various aspects of policy really lead to the racial divide in, in housing and, and just you know, wealth creation and everything. Well, one of the, the papers we read had to do with inequities in property tax assessment, that, that houses that are in poor 
you know, more uh, heavily black populated neighborhoods tend to be overassessed and wealthier white suburbs tend to be underassessed. And this leads to huge inequities in, uh, in tax assessments that to the tune of like $500 billion a year nationwide. So this is a, a big issue. And so we're talking about, okay, what are some possible policy solutions here? And I suggested like just using Zillow, like, you know, because they have you know, pretty accurate assessments of what a house is worth. And so rather than waiting like 10 years to accurately reassess the property value of these houses, um, we could just use Zillow. And so like in real time, one of the students like went to Zillow and looked up their house and said, well, Professor Cannon, like our house, they say it's only worth X and it's really worth quite a lot more than that. So we did this renovation like six years ago and added a new bedroom for me and a new bathroom. And it still says we're a three-bedroom house, but we're really a four-bedroom house now. I said, okay, all right, we'd have to update Zillow's, you know, you know but, but that, to, you know, have that contribution to the discussion then, you know, it was really a great thing of having technology available to the students that they can, you know, use that to add to classroom discussions. Now, again, there, there is the downside where I think the distraction factor is, is certainly there for some students as well, but that's, you, know, you sort of take the good with the bad. Mm -hmm, for sure. Remind us, how many years exactly will it be now that you've been here? Uh, 32 years. 32, uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. And in those 32 years, how have you seen the university and academia more generally change over the course of your career? I know tech is kind of an overarching subject. Yeah, tech would be another one. But there, for Wisconsin specifically, but this is true for many public universities, the other biggest change since I've been here is the financial change and just the financial model for large public universities has changed so dramatically uh, over the course of my career. Um, so at UW right now, about a sixth exactly, a little bit less than a sixth of our funding comes from the state. So we're really not that much of a public university anymore. We're, you know, only a sixth of our funding comes from Wisconsin taxpayers. Back in the 1970s, that peaked at 53%. When I first came here in 1991, it was a third. So it's gone from a third to a sixth, so cut in half basically, uh, of the percent of our funding you know, coming from the state. And, and that's a huge shift in the, the, the model of like how public universities have to thrive. So one thing that's, that's happened is that departments even are more responsible now for fundraising. And so when I was chair, a big part of, of my you know, duties was to make sure that we could continue to get donations from the incredible Badger alumni uh, you know, community that um, you know, is you know, so generous with their support, but you know, of supporting undergraduate scholarships and graduate scholarships and, and professorships for being able to hire. Because you know, we had, for about a six-year period, basically, we got no money from the, the general university fund to hire new faculty. Normally, in a department like this, you want to be hiring like a couple new people every year because people retire and leave. So we went for about six years not having any funds to hire new faculty. Our private donor stepped in, and we were able to hire several people, you know, from this privately raised money, you know, to be able to continue to do things that top-ranked departments need to be able to do. So I would say that shift in finances is is the other biggest thing in addition to technology that's really changed. So. Do you think that that's positively impacted the university for the most part, this shift in funding, or do you think that Well, no, I mean, it, it, no, I mean, I think it's been really hard on universities to, to lose that source, because you could always, you know, before, you could depend on that part of the budget, you know, coming from, from the state. 
and it was a more dependable part of the budget. And so having to have more of the money now coming from grants, like the, the biggest source of our funds now is, is federal grants, um, and private money, that's much less dependable. Like, you know, that comes, especially during a recession, people aren't gonna give as much, and so you really don't have as steady a source. And then, you know, with the tuition freeze that was in place for, what, almost a decade, that's another source of income that just, you know, wasn't as available then, you know, to the university. So, no, it's been very, very challenging um, to, to have that, that kind of reduction happen. Have you seen any changes in the field of political science in general throughout those several decades in teaching it? Yeah, so I, I think probably the biggest change overall, um, again, this, this is a story of both continuity and change. And so the basic structure of political science is still the same. Like we still have our main subfields of American politics and comparative politics and international relations, political theory, political methods. That's true. That was when I went to grad school. It's been true for my whole career. And so that's the kind of continuity part. But the I'd say the biggest change in political science as a discipline has been to become more diverse in the approaches to doing political science. Something that, again, our department has always been like that since I was here and since before I came. We've always been a kind of pluralistic department that accepts a lot of different ways of, of doing political science from the more you know, qualitative you know, kind of, of work to the more quantitative and mathematical. We have kind of the full range here. But the, depart the department wasn't uh, as, I think, in tune with what the, the general trend of the discipline was, which was you know, early on in my career, it was very much more on the scientific side. But then starting in 2000, there was this, I was gonna say revolt, that's a little too strong, but at least a sort of internal critique that was, was very uh, strong uh, called Perestroika, named after the, you know, the, the Polish uh, anti-Soviet you know, kind of movement in, in, uh, in the Eastern Bloc countries in, in Europe. Um, and so Perestroika was aimed at, at trying to fight against the, what they saw as the hegemonic position of rational choice approach to political science and more statistical approach and wanting to have more of the qualitative, normative, policy-oriented you know, kind of work to be valued by the discipline. And I think they, they had a real impact. Um, there was a, a new journal called Perspectives on Politics that they started publishing that, that published that kind of work. And I think it, it made the discipline move at least a little bit in the direction of this department, like what we had been doing all along. And so I think that was a healthy change in the discipline. Do you have any favorite classes that you miss teaching the most, or favorite concepts and courses? Yeah, I, 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 that was, this is one of the hardest questions, I think. <laughs> and I, I think I'm just gonna, entirely going to punt and, uh, and say I really have enjoyed them all. And I know that sounds like a cop-out, but it's absolutely true. Because most people don't like te teaching the big intro class. Uh, you know, Ken Mayer and I have are, been the two people who have done this for 32 years now, and John Coleman when he, when he was here. And it's hard getting people to want to, to do it, because it is challenging, but I really have enjoyed that class a lot. And it, because it is a way to, to reach most people that, of any class you can teach, and to get them excited about politics, not, not just about political science, and hopefully we will you know, convert some people to be majors, and that's what you know, a good intro class you know, can do in part, but also just to get people excited about politics and interested in politics. And so that was always one of the most rewarding things for me 
was like I would be standing, you know, in line to, to vote, uh, and you know, a student come up to me and say, "Hey, I'm here because of 104." Like I, I was, ne- I'd never voted before, and I was not interested in politics, but this got me interested in politics, and so I'm here today because of your class. It's like, ha, you made my year. Like, like that's the best possible kind of, of, of compliment you could get on teaching. So that, so the big class, in a lot of ways, if I had to pick one, I might say it's the big intro class. But I really enjoy the, the upper level lecture classes as well, teaching a class in the presidency right now with about 80 students in it. And it's just been a really good class. I mean, the students are, they're, they're just amazing. Like they always come up with these great questions and you know, just good, good responses to things that, that come up. And um, so that, that's always a lot of fun. And then the small seminar I do in race and politics, I've done that for about 15, 20 years now. And that's, especially because it's an ethnic studies requirement class, I often have about probably three-fourths of the students in that class aren't poli-sci. So that's super interesting. So we'll have a topic like healthcare was two weeks ago as our topic. And we have four students in the class that are going to go to med school and have already like worked in hospitals and have experienced a lot of things we're reading about. And so that, that's really a lot of, of fun too. So I, yeah, so it, it's definitely a cop-out, but I, I like all my classes. <laughs> so, so I'll let you take a cop-out this yeah. time. It's yeah. like picking yeah. a favorite child. Yeah, that's right. No, that's right. <laughs> what has changed about American politics over the last decade or three that has really surprised you the most? I would say the polarization in politics. That, that has been the biggest change for sure um, in politics that, you know, in a, in a very harmful, negative way, um, because... You know, we always obviously have had you know partisan politics and a two-party system, and but if you look back at the way Washington politics worked, say a generation ago, you had those partisan differences, but it was easier for the parties to, to work together. And now the the divide you see in Congress and in national politics, kind of generally, is not only a deeper divide, but there's also more animosity between the two sides than we've seen before. And if you look at surveys that are done, you know, of the, the general public, um, on, think, on questions like not only like, you know, what, what do you believe in, what are your policy positions, but what do you think of the other side? And there is like this deep uh, animosity to the other side. Like you just like really don't like the people on the other team. And even things like, you know, would you want one of your kids to marry someone who's not of your, you know, of your party? that percentage has like doubled in the, the last like 20 years or so where like no one, I don't think, you know, 30, 40 years ago would have really thought that much about having their kid marry a Republican or marry a Democrat, depending on what they were. And now you see people like really concerned about that. And so I would say that is the biggest change is this deep polarization that we have in politics today. Mm-hmm. And that's something you didn't see coming 30 years ago? No, not really. No. I mean, it, it's just, again, we've always had divisions. We've always had policy differences, but not to the extent we've had today. Has that made teaching harder? It does. I mean, I think it does. I mean, the UW campus certainly leans left of center, but I've seen it in my classes, too, that it's harder to talk about some of these issues now um, than it was before, I think, because the divisions are, are so much deeper. Um, so, so, yeah, I think it is more challenging to teach now than it was on, on certain topics anyway. Yeah. yeah. What do you, this is a, maybe a tough question, sorry to put you on the spot, but what do you think is 
your role as a teacher in that type of situation, like, do you see that as an opportunity to kind of bridge the gap for people or how do you go about that? Well, yes. And I, and certainly it has been, you know, my perspective, especially intro class, it's, I think less, I see it as, as less crucial to do this in upper level classes when students have found their grounding a little bit more, but in intro class, I always did try very hard to present both sides of different issues. You know, when there, when there are, you know, because uh, most issues do have legitimate, you know, multiple perspectives on them. Now, there are some that don't, like, you know, climate change. Like, that's one where it's really, like, the science is all on one side. And so there are a few things where, you know, you just have to, you know, say what it is. But for most issues, there are different perspectives. Um, and so, again, especially in intro class, I always would try to be pretty balanced. And um, I would... You know, never tell the students like what direction I was coming from, and and most most students I think did uh, respect that and think that that was a, a good thing. You know, just because I my, my mantra was I, I don't want to, to teach you what to think, I want to teach you how to think. Um, and and then at the end of the semester, they if they would ask me, you know, I, I would you know tell them if they would ask you know was a Democrat or Republican at the end of the semester. And one my my favorite. Um, uh, sort of guess I had from a student because I'd make them guess first. One said, well, you sound a little more like a Democrat, but you dress more like a Republican. Because I always would wear a, a tie and jacket, you know, to, to 104 uh, at, uh, at that time. And, and so, um, but yeah, so I, I do think it's important to to try to to give students like the understanding of what the arguments are on both sides. Because we, if we ever are going to bridge that divide and to be able to overcome polarization, I think the key thing is to not just be in your silo and only understanding the world from your perspective. You have to try to attempt what the other side thinks. And you, you, that's the only way you can ever have dialogue across, across that divide. So I think you know, giving students that ability to, to try to understand both sides is an important start to this, this process. I have a feeling this next question is going to build off a lot of your last answer about polarization, but what challenges do you think that American politics are going to face in the future? Yeah, well, certainly it's rooted in polarization, but I, I would take it one step further um, in terms of what we've seen since 2020, and that is the, the challenges to democracy and to, to elections and to making sure that the process of conducting elections remains something that that isn't subject to political interference and that we do have a fair way of allowing voters to vote and having those votes be, be counted. And certainly we were sorely tested in, in 2020 and the system did come through it and we, we the courts you know stepped in and and made sure that you know these elections in Wisconsin and Arizona and Georgia you know weren't overturned. Um, but it was a you know, obviously with January sixth, you know, was, was the other you know big test, and but you know, we survived that test. But but we're not done yet. I mean, I think that there are ongoing challenges for sure along those lines, and I think we're going to need to remain vigilant on this topic of defending democracy because uh, that that is the other thing I think that is is really going to play out in a significant way over the next you know two or three uh, cycles. So on the other end, both talking about recent trends that you've seen, you said polarization growing, but is there any positive trends that you've seen in the last recent decades of American politics that you think are 
um, beneficial and make you optimistic? And what makes you optimistic about the future of American politics? So two things there. I mean, one is the resilience of our system. The fact that you know we've been through worse before, for sure. Uh, you know, Civil War for, for one, but even the 1960s, everything that happened in the 1960s, you know, I think were at least as challenging or, or more so than what we're going through today. And our system really is structured to, to be resilient. I mean, the system of checks and balances, you know, can be frustratingly slow and complex and lead to gridlock, but it also is really good at preventing tyranny. That, that's why it was set up the way that it was, is that the founders wanted to make sure that we wouldn't have a tyrannical system. And so that is something I think that, that has worked really well in the system. The fact that you know, we do have the courts that can step in and say, no, you can't steal an election. Um, and, and so that, I think, does give me hope that we are going to get through this latest challenging time. Then the other really positive thing is is you all, the, the students, the next generation. I mean, I'm always just blown away by the extent to which the, the next generation of people really is concerned about making the world a better place and about you know, things like climate change and, and trying to, to heal divisions and figure out ways to, um, yeah, to, to improve our political system. And so that's something I think that this generation definitely is, is very engaged and that always is what gives me hope is to see that next generation of people coming up that are, are willing to step in and, and do the work that's necessary to to make our messy system work mm -hmm. so speaking of engagement we're living in a time when some observers suggest that our disinformation and misinformation is a threat to our elections and institutions and democracy in general. So we're curious what you view as the most reliable and accurate sources of information and news and what are your go-to sources? Yeah, well, really good question. And you're right about the, the danger of misinformation. And so one just general starting point of advice I would have, and I always mention this uh, in most of my classes, is to you know go to the, the source of places you know are legitimate news outlets because there's so much misinformation out on the internet now and especially now with AI, JetGBT and the ability to make these fake videos now that you can do just like in seconds, like you can make a video of anything and, and unless you really are an expert, it's hard to determine what's real and what's not real. And, and so making sure that you're actually reading information that is legitimate and not just made up by either some computer somewhere or some someone in some basement who's just like making stuff up like you know it happens you know, all the time um, that's like you know number one but then in terms of being a good consumer of news I, I think you know going to your you know uh, sources whether you're on the left or right so on the, the left you know things like New York Times Washington Post um, on the right things more like you know Wall Street Journal National Review um, but then and making sure though you're selecting from both sides. And so here, like some of the news aggregators, um, like uh, Real Clear Politics does a pretty good job, I think, of pulling stuff both from left and right. And so going to a source like that, that only is going to link to legitimate you know, news stories and not like just made up stuff is one way to uh, at least eliminate that first step to make sure you're consuming good news. Um, 
the thing not to do is to rely on TikTok or other you know social media and just like click through stuff there that this becomes the way you stay informed. That's that's not the the thing to do. Mm -hmm. So, well, five thirty eight is another one of my favorites. Uh, they not only are they a great source on all things sports, but they also uh, have really good political analysis and and do a great job of taking often fairly complicated issues and being able to present them in a pretty digestible way. Yeah. yeah. I saw Nate Silver's talk. It was super interesting. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, Cause he started out in, in sports. Like yeah. he was a, a baseball, you know, sabermetics guy. And then he got into politics. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Kathy Kramer, I'm taking a class with her this semester and she asked us a warm up question about baseball the other day. And no one, Everyone in the class was like, I don't watch baseball anymore. She was like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> um, I have one more question just because I have to ask since you are, so you've been so involved in kind of redistricting and courts in your career. What do you think is going to happen now that Janet Prosewitz is elected into office? Yeah, well, so they there's talk now that you know, there is a, a case that will be brought up probably late August after she's sworn in, and they still don't have, you know, it's not anything that's, that's been drafted yet, and we don't know exactly what the nature of that case is going to look like. But I think there's a really pretty good chance that we will have the ability to revisit that partisan gerrymander that we had that really dates back to 2011, because the, the map that we have in place right now adopted a, a least change approach to the map that was endorsed by our Supreme Court at the time by a 4-3 margin. Um, and that pretty much endorsed and even made it a little bit worse that gerrymander from 10 years before. So I think that there probably will be at least some improvement in those maps of making them less of a partisan gerrymander. Um, and so it yeah, it depends on exactly how the case is framed and you know how far they'll be able to, to go in terms of redressing some of those imbalances. But I think we will, all, probably not for 2024, that would be a pretty fast schedule. I mean, some people think it can be done in time for 2024, but you have filing deadlines, I think, come up in what early May, maybe. Um, and the case wouldn't be brought until August. And so unless, the only way it could happen that fast would be if the state Supreme Court once again, took the case on an expedited track, which is something they normally don't do because they're not a trial court, they're an appeals court. And so normally you'd have to start you know, down the system and work its way up to the state Supreme Court. So the only way it'd be in place for 2024 would be if they would take it on a sort of expedited track, which is possible, but probably not too likely. Okay. On that note, actually, I know that there was the, um, a referendum question on this spring election ballot about redistricting and about a more nonpartisan Right. body taking it over. How do you see that gaining any traction in the long term here? Yeah, I I don't I don't think it will just because this is something that both parties want to preserve the control over drawing district lines when they're in charge. And and so I mean the Democrats actually had a chance to do this back when Jim Doyle was governor. The Democrats had unified control of state government and they could have adopted a nonpartisan redistricting plan, but they didn't. Um, and then they obviously lost and Republicans, you know, gained the ability to, to draw the map. So um, I, I think that it's unlikely that the main way this changes is in states that have initiative and referendum process where the voters can put something on the ballot. We don't have that in Wisconsin. So we can't, mm -hmm. as voters, put a binding 
referendum up for a vote that has to come through the state legislature. State legislature won't want to do it because they love drawing their own districts. So totally. felt like a bit of a tease on the spring ballot, like, oh, you're just totally well, <laughs> right, exactly, yeah, because every time you know that this on a ballot, it gets approved by voters. It doesn't matter if it's a Republican state like Utah or a Democratic state like uh, Michigan or a more purple state. You know, it it passes like whenever it gets up for a, a vote from voters because it just makes sense that it's an inherent conflict of interest to have politicians drawing their own maps. Like, of course, they're going to draw maps to help themselves, and Democrats do it and Republicans do it. It is not a partisan thing in terms of. of DNR, it's a, a partisan thing in terms of majority party versus minority party. And, and it doesn't, it's just common sense that, yeah, we don't want them doing that. This should be done by a nonpartisan commission. So to wrap up a little bit, what haven't we talked about that we should be talking about? Do you have any closing thoughts on politics well, in America? Actually, one, one thing that, that, um, that occurred to me, and this would you know, be more for your listeners who are actually going to be graduating and on the, the job market, but I, I've talked to quite a few of my students who are thinking about well, what are my next steps and you know, go to grad school or should I be applying for jobs? And, and so I thought it might be useful just to talk a little bit about that in terms of what to be thinking about when you're you know, thinking about you know, what you want to be doing for your career. Um, and so one thing just on a, like a positive note, um, first of all, the job market right now is better than it's been in 50 years. Like this one of the rare times when there are more job openings and there are people looking for work. Um, and the unemployment rates like at a 50 year low. So that that's great. Another thing too that helps take some of the pressure off I think of people when they're navigating this for the first time is that unlike a generation ago, people today will change their careers multiple times. Like it's really unusual to go like work for a company and be at that company for your whole career the way that would have been true, say, a generation or two ago. Um, and so you don't feel like you're, you have to be all in on this first decision. Like people you know, will try something and they're doing something different. Um, and so it, yeah, so that I think just takes some of the pressure off. And then the, the third thing would be something that I'm sure everyone hears from every person that gives advice uh, about careers, but you know, do try to pick an area, something that you're really interested in and something that, that you will be able to you know, throw yourself into and to, you know, to feel like you are doing something that is you know, not just to like, earn money, which is also a good thing because you need to support yourself, um, but to do something you, you will in, enjoy doing. And so you know, um, just doing something that seems like it you know, is a logical move in terms of like, uh, you know, what's going to you know, be a stable career or something, I would urge people to do something that really will, will be of interest. Um, and then finally, just one other very little tip on, on um, building resumes and like what to, you know, get noticed. Uh, and yes, a lot of this is done, obviously, through these job search websites now and, you know, to make something that'll uh, stand out. Um, one thing I think that and this may not help that initial screening because a lot of this is just done by algorithms now and certain things you have to hit to be able to get noticed by the computer. But what this is something I think is really useful for the interview stage is put something on your resume that's a, an interesting little fact about yourself, something, some weird job you had or something that, you know, because interviewers want to have something to be an icebreaker to talk about. And so... I did this and no one told me to do this. I just did it because it seemed like a good idea when I was applying for jobs. 
So I put something on my resume for when I was applying for academic jobs. I mentioned that I had been a beer vendor at Twins and Vikings games, the Twins baseball and, and Vikings football games at the Metrodome in Minneapolis for my whole time I was in grad school. And I just, I thought this would be kind of fun to put every single person that I talked to in an interview brought that up first. It was like, the, it was their icebreaker, like, oh, this is kind of cool. Tell me about being a beer vendor. And so it was just a good way to, to be able to like, you know, get into the interview in a way that was, you know, uh, you know just interesting and, and relaxed and, and not sort of high pressure. So if you have something like that, that could be just an interesting part about you that could be kind of an icebreaker on the resume, I think that's a, a good thing to do. I like yeah. that tip. Yeah. I do too. Yeah, that's a fun one. We haven't heard that one quite as much. So yeah. good tips. Yeah. Um, we know that you're going to be splitting time between Minneapolis and Madison now, but what are some fun things you're excited to be doing in and around Madison when you come back more often? Well, a couple things for sure. Um, the senior auditors, they, you know, this is something in our class we have about what? five, six of them maybe, I think, in our presidency class. And I always have in one of four, I have like eight or 10. Um, but it's a great thing here at UW that once you're, I think, over 60 maybe, is it? Something, you know, 60, 62, something like that. Um, you can sit in on any class that professor says you can sit in on. And my wife has done this a couple of times. Um, so I'm definitely gonna take a few classes. Um, and you know, in areas that I haven't ever taken classes in. And so, like I said, I love being a student. And that's the thing about being a professor that's so great is I got to be a student my whole life. Well, I want to keep on being a student. And so this is one way I can keep on doing that. Um, and then Badger Volleyball. That's the other thing. My wife and I have had season tickets to Badger Volleyball for about 10 years now. Um, and we're definitely going to keep on doing that. So if you ever want to you know, yeah. see me you know, go to a volleyball game, and I'll, I'll be there <laughs> in Section H. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> I have a question. What's your, um, what are like some topics that you really want to explore? Like when you're sitting in on classes here, any in particular that are jumping out to you? Yeah. So there's this one, um, on jazz that I definitely want to take in the music department that, that is just kind of on the history of jazz. I, I really want to take that and probably some other history classes. Um, I've always had an interest in, in American history, especially I may even, you know, do some science classes. Like I haven't, taken like any like natural science you know, science classes since my undergrad days and so maybe just uh, doing like an intro physics class or something I'm not sure but yeah definitely <laughs> music and history I think would be the the first two I would would do very cool yeah. that history of jazz class is notoriously hard so oh well, I'm auditing though it doesn't matter so you're, exactly, <laughs> so, you're doing it the yeah, best way possible right. you don't have to do the assignments right, yeah. <laughs> that's perfect uh, yeah. Well, thanks again so much for being on the podcast once yeah. again, and it's been lovely to have you all of these Thank times you. and sharing your wisdom on all things American politics and elections and teaching wisdom. So we really yeah. appreciated having you, and please come back and visit. All right, will do. Well, thanks for having me. For more information on 1050 Bascom, visit polisci.wisc.edu and search for 1050 Bascom. The podcast is edited by Claire Salmi, Fiona Hatch, and Cole Wozniak, and is produced by Amy Gangle. Thanks for listening.